We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What is Zero RB really, and where do we stand in 2021? That's what we're talking about this week on Stealing Bananas, and this is the player-specific episode. I'm Ben Gretsch, at Yards Per Gretsch. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. And Sean, we're going to sit and talk about Zero RB targets. It's what the listeners want. This will be a very fun episode. Yeah, the... Discussion of zero RB targets every year is the number one thing I get engagement on. And I think that makes sense, right? Because it's not just an idea of, okay, we're going to play zero RB, but we want to win with it. And as you mentioned in the first show of the week, it is important, the players that you select, and it's important the profiles of running backs that we select as we go through these rounds. Absolutely. And and that's probably the biggest mistake, and we, we talked about this on the first episode, but if you missed it, that's probably the biggest mistake I see from people who employ zero RB or try to and more or less think that it doesn't work is that they, they still chase sort of the guaranteed touches and, and the things that or the idea of guaranteed touches and the things that are why running backs bust at a high rate are, are why anti-fragility works in fantasy football that's not what we really want to be targeting. We're almost intentionally moving away from some of the guaranteed stuff. That's that's not entirely true, but certainly when you're talking about, um, you know, in the sixth or seventh or eighth round, when people tend to pull out of their zero RB build and start to grab the most fragile of the the projected number one running backs on draft day, those are not the guys that you want to do, that you want to build around to build a zero RB roster. You you want guys that that have upside first of all, but also, you know, you can target RB ones, but they're going to, they're not going to be guys that are, are, are guaranteed touches. Touch. I mean, I'm, I'm specifically thinking about like the Zach Mosses, who's a, a very clear one for this year. He's got upside as well. Part of the reason he goes late is not, not because of uncertainty or those issues. It's because there's probably too much, too much certainty that, that, that the Buffalo backfield is going to be sort of pointless for running backs, but there's certainly a possibility that it couldn't be. So, yeah, I mean, the way that we build this is is really important, and it's a big lesson for me over the last several years is, is to understand that you need some guys that can help you through the first month of the season, something we talked about in the first episode, and and often the the best profile for that because of how, how cheap they are in, in drafts is, is pass-catching pass guys for PPR leagues that, that can be really 
really solid options at any point throughout a season, but they go very late in some cases because they don't, you know, have the perceived upside. But you don't want to you don't want to be shooting for floor too much. You also want to be building in a lot of upside, guys that could really absolutely define the season. And there are ways to target that. We talked about this a little bit on, in previous weeks, explosive players, things like that. But Sean, who are some of those upside guys in the middle rounds that that we should really be talking about? There are a lot of different ways that we can go about putting these zero RB rosters together, right? And the first way is to make that sort of early detour, have less of a pure zero RB build, but have that, as you mentioned in the first show, that one pick a little bit out of structure and then getting back into the structure. I like, and I think in part because of all the discussion uh, that you and Jack and, and some of all of these great writers are developing with the dead zone is that we're seeing guys who earlier would have been more expensive picks are now getting pushed out of that range because people are reluctant to be the guy who takes someone in that range. We know the players in the dead zone and in that area right after the dead zone who are the most dynamic offer the most upside, especially offer the upside maybe over the second half of the season when it matters most to you would be these dynamic rookies. And so I, the first names that really jump to mind for me are Travis Etienne and Javante Williams. Yeah, and we talked about them a little bit in an earlier episode, but I, I think my hypothesis for why some of these dead zone running backs actually do hit, and, and traditionally the ones that do get all the way to the elite upside are, are either rookies or in some cases second-year breakouts. They're, you know, Alvin Kamara in his rookie year, um, although he was going a little bit later, Ray Rice's second year was one that that was you know pretty huge from the dead zone. It, it's it's players that we're not really sure on as a an industry. We're not sure on their workload. We're not sure on their talent, and because of that, they might be going a little bit later than people realize. But but ETN I think is a really interesting one because he was a really great pro- prospect, and we knew coming in that he had explosiveness. He has some pass catching ability, and he lands in Jacksonville as a first round pick alongside his college backfield mate, Trevor Lawrence, who's now the franchise quarterback. But a lot of the discussion has been about Urban Meyer bringing in Carlos Hyde, who he coached at Ohio State, obviously James Robinson being there. To to a degree where ETN's first-round draft capital is sort of being overlooked, I I think there's way too much certainty that he's going to play this Percy Harvin role and the comments that Urban Meyer had about wanting Kadarius Toney are sort of relevant but at the same time, one of the things that we're seeking out is uncertainty. And, and we don't know what's going to happen with ETN. One thing that very well could happen is ETN could be very, very good. He was very clearly one of the top backs in this class. And if he makes a bunch of explosive plays early in the season, the question I would ask is, are they really going to keep him off the field and keep him in a specific role in favor of getting guys like Carlos Hyde and to a lesser extent, James Robinson touches? But if it's just... ETN and Robinson and ETN has the the receiving and the more valuable side of that, that that's almost fine. Like he'll be fine in that, in that scenario, but he could be so good that they won't be able to keep him off the field. And, and then there's the other side where everyone wants to value Urban Meyer and this sort of narrative side value Urban Meyer's relationship with Hyde. But what about Lawrence's relationship with ETN, which no one's talking about? He is familiar with him. He has thrown passes to him out of the backfield. I've talked a lot about how running back receiving has a lot to do with the quarterback. In my opinion, I'm, optimistic about ETN's receiving because 
Lawrence is very familiar with just the little subtle movements and where he's going to be on the field on, on checkdowns and things. Those things should probably help their connection in year one and, and the catch rate. And yeah, I think there's, there, there's so much certainty that ETN's role is capped and all it really takes is him to have a couple of long touchdowns in September. And then wait a minute, he's our first round long-term future of the franchise type running back. Why, why would his, why would his role be capped? I mean, that, that's just, it's going to get flipped on its head if that happens. And we look at how players score points and what elements are expensive. We still live in this environment where the rush points are more expensive than they should be, even though we understand how fantasy players score, right? So the article that I wrote on Jonathan Taylor, trying to go through what his upside is, one of the things that I noted about him is that his closest comps, the really the big superstars in Ezekiel Elliott, Todd Gurley, Melvin Gordon, Leonard Fournette, who hasn't emerged as a star at the NFL level. Uh, those guys take a big jump in receiving in year two, a big jump in receiving in year three. But when we're trying to project Taylor and trying to figure out how he gets to the level where he can return value as a round one pick, we're almost looking a little bit more at a Dalvin Cook. And we mentioned on the show how Dalvin Cook was a 15 and five guy. So 15 expected points as a rusher five expected points as a receiver, a profile that's only been four times done four other times this century and all of them 2006 or earlier. When we're talking about players getting to 20 expected points, and I think the expected points metric is just hugely valuable in understanding how running backs score and what you need profile wise to get return at the place you're drafting them. We want these guys with a 20 plus expected points because then if you happen to pair that with a season that you're very efficient you know this explosiveness is also important where you have maybe a four or five fqe season you're you're scoring that many points above expectation then you get in that 24 25 range when we look at these guys who are 20 plus ep the only one during the sort of current you know new uber back era to hit that 20 ep with fewer than 8.9 receiving expected points was cook and that's per game 8.9 expected points per game receiving so that's a significant number of targets right and so we look at what camara did as a rookie now granted he was cheaper and so the win rate when you compare the two if they do the same things will have still been a little better for camara but we're looking at etn to fill that role and it's easier to get to those receiving points if that's a big part of your role, then it is for some of these run heavy guys. One of the things I think you have to look at too, is just, again, just how, what is realistic? I mean, is Austin Eckler going to add in the rush points to get his rush EP to the level that he can return value at ADP? It's possible, right? But it does take a lot of optimism, I think, in order to get him there. And, and I say that as someone who has been promoting Eckler as Alvin Kamara light as one of the best players in the NFL. I'm not an Eckler skeptic by, by any stretch, but we look at ETN. I mean, how similar are their profiles going to end up being at the end of the season? And so you look at those elements and I think it's difficult to see ETN not returning value at his current ADP unless he gets hurt. I mean, his upside, he's being priced really as though, all he's going to get are those receiving touches. And like you mentioned, someone coming in with that profile in that offense with what we know about his receiving EP, 
the upside portion isn't being priced in. Whereas you compare people in those first four rounds, they're being priced on their upside and the downside is not reflected in ADP. Yeah, and when you talk about the rushing EP getting up there high enough, the, the really important point there is, again, these are expected points from the line of scrimmage where the touches come. And a huge part of that is going to be green zone touches, as I like to call them, touches inside the 10, touches close to the end zone. Those have a much higher expected point value because obviously touchdowns are very important. The big thing with my trap stat and my high value touch stat is that rush attempts now outside the 10, really, but certainly, you know, what we think of as between the 20s carries are not really worth that much. So when, when you think about a guy like Eckler, you're not really thinking, well, how many carries can he get as much as you're thinking, will he get some carries in, in, the, in the green zone? And, and for ETN, it, it feels a little bit challenging to imagine that because that feels like a better fit for James Robinson and even Carlos Hyde. But there are ways that that could happen. We don't know a lot about this offense. We don't know. Uh, we've talked a lot about the you know sort of changing trends in the NFL. We don't know if they will use him uh, in shotgun spread formations in close as a back that gives them a different look and then do some inside draws out of the shotgun, jet motion stuff, things like that. That that can be used very, very effectively in close near the near the end zone. And then the other side of ETN's upside that I'm thinking of is that he's a pretty darn good bet to be efficient on his rushing EP. So even if his rushing EP isn't phenomenal, he was an explosive back in college. There's a lot of reasons we could expect that he could have a couple long touchdown runs, which in, in and of themselves, if he just does that a couple times throughout the year, will make him a very efficient runner over what will probably, you know, in, in that scenario where maybe he's not getting a lot of close looks he might have a little bit lower rush EP than we'd like to see. But to your point, the receiving EP would still be fine to value him where, where he's going in drafts and he could be efficient on the rushing EP. And so there's, there's multiple paths for him that are just, it, there's like you said, just way too much certainty that his role is going to be limited and also kind of bizarre to think of it that way when the ways that it's limited are the ways that we value, which is the receiving. Uh, what about Javante Williams though? Because there's a lot of people that are saying Melvin Gordon is sort of the best value in drafts. We mentioned Melvin Gordon a lot because he's sort of the profile back in the day that w- when he was young, he's one of the you know quintessential best zero RB hits of all time after a zero touchdown rookie season where he was not as efficient and people thought he was terrible and they were very certain that he was bad at football. He came out and had a very big second year as an eighth or ninth round pick and you had him absolutely everywhere that year. What about that Denver backfield situation Do you see Javante having, uh, it's not really the right way to frame the question, but do you see him having enough of a role early? And and more importantly, what can happen late? Exactly. I I think that that first month isn't even that important to me. And one of the things here that can maybe be a little counterintuitive is that the first back that I select with a zero running back build may not be the one that I'm counting on to get me through the first half of the season. That may be the back that I'm looking to, to win the whole thing with. And I think that Williams kind of fits that category there where if the Denver offense emerges and they have so much firepower outside of the quarterback position that there are scenarios where this is actually an explosive offense. I mean, it's hard to think of it that way with Bridgewater or Locke, but there's the potential for those wide receivers to really dominate and make it so this team can score a lot of points. And you look at Williams, he's an undervalued prospect. Now, people are all over the place on him. You definitely have... Uh, some participants who think that he's better than Harris, better than ETN, right? So there are people out there who promote him as the number one back in this class. One of the things that I like is that he's 
far younger than the, those two guys. And you know, Blair continues to do research. It, it's something that the people know, but I think when you get actual names attached to some of the profiles and you're like, it doesn't matter that Harris is old. It doesn't matter that ETN is old. It doesn't matter that those guys were putting up these gaudy numbers against much younger players, right? Williams more along the line of what we're looking for trajectory wise in terms of age adjusted production. And he gets some attention for the broken tackles, which I think tends to be overpriced, but it's not with him this year, which is nice. But he also was one of our top guys in Dave Cabin's breakaway rush score, which is something that actually translates very well to the NFL in terms of being able to create touches because NFL teams want to put explosive guys out there, right? I think that it gets way too much attention on this idea that yards per carry is random and doesn't matter because one of the things that we're looking for is exposure to athletic players who can create big plays. You don't know necessarily what season the players are going to blow up in, but again, in this, this sort of Taylor article, I'm looking at, you know, Gordon, Gurley, Elliot, to have a league winning season, you have to hit the year where you have the high EP and then they really best that by a wide margin. You don't know what season it is, but you know you have exposure to it when you've got an elite player. And so Williams, I think one of those guys who may create more big plays than we see. We also just have the very clear dynamic where Williams and Gordon are going in opposite directions. If you told me that Gordon, the talent that he has been in the past, has this sort of second wind and does have a good 2021 season, you know, that wouldn't surprise me. I wouldn't say that's impossible. But again, when we're looking at the most likely outcomes, playing the different scenarios out, I mean, the Broncos went and got Williams because they see him as the next star. Most of the stuff coming out of the Denver area about the team suggests that that really is what they think and that he will be the guy. And so we talk about these committee backfields or sort of co-starter backfields and how in most cases you want the cheaper player, but not always. We want to have exposure to the league winning type of player based on what his profile is, not necessarily the, the less expensive one. Yeah. And I think Williams makes a lot of sense um, in that regard. And and to me very clearly, as you said, has, has the, the higher upside and, and some of it is just uncertainty that we, we don't necessarily know, but that is worth valuing. You talked about being able to have the efficiency to best really high EP seasons, something that can happen with these young running backs who do have substantial draft capital behind them. And like I was mentioning with ETN is if they can be efficient early, then their EP spikes because of that. And that's something else that Blair has shown in his work that efficiency tends to lead to more opportunity. And that's something that we're sort of targeting with these guys. I, I want to ask you about two other rookie running backs that I don't really know where you stand on. And I mentioned them both actually in the first show, but after those two are off the board, if you miss on ETN and Williams, or they're not part of you know this particular build, uh, Michael Carter and Trey Sermon are two guys that are available there in, in about the eighth round in a lot of drafts. I've sort of gone back and forth on both. I'm, I'm curious. They, they sort of fit, obviously, with some of the uncertainty and, and the running back uh, or the youth at the running back position that we like to target. I, I'm curious how you are viewing those two. They're tricky, but potentially exciting, right? I mean, you're, you're not having to pay at levels that would – push them off your board or make it impossible to build around them and, and take the chance, even if they miss. And yet they are still in the range where you're giving up other exciting players. Carter in some ways I think is more straightforward because even if he doesn't emerge as the clear cut guy there, he's going to have receiving touches. And we just know how easy it is to be 
a viable starter, if not an impact starter, just because of the receiving touches. So you don't have to have anything else going right for you. If that Jets offense is better than we expect, if Zach Wilson has them going right from day one and they actually move the ball, score some points, then perhaps you have even more upside there. He's someone else who can create some big plays. Maybe he doesn't have, again, from sort of a, an age-adjusted and size-adjusted trajectory, doesn't have maybe that bell cow ability to completely take this and put up a monster season but he should be a good player for you sermon is almost the opposite where i think that we have very little idea what potentially will happen he could be the absolute star and in that case in san francisco i mean you're talking about the potential of so many points at the same time his actual profile as opposed to what he did in the last handful of college games is just littered with red flags and so you know how much do we want to put on just a couple of games uh, on the one hand you want that upside those games illustrated what he can do but we know the dangers of looking at what happened in just the last game what happened in the very tiny sample that creates a lot more danger for drafters and then you put him into this mix with the 49ers where they do have other talented players i mean raheem mostert consistently puts up you know the fastest on field speeds at running back Wayne Gallman, an undervalued type of player, not a league winner like Sermon could potentially be, but someone who's in the mix there. You know, Wilson's injury probably opens things up for Sermon to have that potential breakout early. You also have a little bit of the dynamic that people are concerned about with the Ravens backs, where you're not necessarily going to get all of the receiving touches and not necessarily going to get the goal line touches if Lance is the QB. We see a, a very, and again, it's, it's probably not a price you want to take, but compared to some other players, you get a pretty palatable price on J.K. Dobbins because of those some of those concerns. At, at what price in a draft are you looking at Sermon, who probably has some of those concerns, and it's far less clear that he'll have the opportunity that Dobbins does have? Yeah, I think that's a tricky question. It's been easier for me to pull the trigger on Carter for the reasons you said. I, I am just way too focused, not too focused, but just, just very overly focused on, on receiving potential as you know. And, and so I, for, for Carter, it makes a lot more sense for the types of running backs that I like to build around, but I can see obviously with the situation where some, like he's one that I'm afraid of not having exposure to, but at his prices, I have not been taking a lot of him. We'll take a quick break, but afterwards we're going to, we're going to talk about some of the guys a little bit more in the pure zero RB range. We're going to talk about, you know, the AJ Dillons, the Tony Pollards, and even later some of the best handcuffs and, and some of the best pass, pass catching backs right after we get back. Hey, Rotoviz Radio listener. This is Curtis Patrick from the Dynasty Command Center podcast, and I've got a special deal for you today. Go to rotoviz.com, click the subscribe button, put the 12 month subscription in your cart, and use promo code RVRADIO2021. That's RVRADIO2021. And you're gonna save 10%. Taking advantage of this deal, getting your hands on what's included in the package is the best way to enhance your performance this year. So go to rotoviz.com and subscribe now. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, 
and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. So, Sean, when we start talking about real zero RB builds, pure zero RB builds, where we're not actually getting exposure to guys like ETN and Javante Williams, we start to get into the Zach Moss range, who I know you really like. And Moss is sort of straightforward in the sense that we we sort of know that the, the Bills probably won't be a massive running back fantasy point scoring situation, but he does still have some upside there. But A.J. Dillon's one I really like. We've talked about recently, Tony Pollard, players like that. Who are some guys in that range that you think have, or I guess maybe let's frame it this way. What like what are we looking for first from, from picks in this range? The real home run combination is going to be the high value touches with a player who is being discounted perhaps because the previous year's expectations were too high, right? So you think about some of those guys who came out of nowhere in the past and you're like, well, how could they not have been drafted earlier? You know, how was Jamal Charles not drafted earlier the year that he broke out? How, you know, were CJ Spiller and Jeremy McFadden not going earlier? Well, Part of the reason which they showed then the very following year is that it was sort of a fluke when they did have the big season. But we have some of these guys come into the NFL and in part because you do occasionally have Saquon Barkley type of rookie seasons, then we're looking for everybody to have that type of season. So you have someone like a Zach Moss who profiles very similarly to a David Montgomery and he actually does David Montgomery-ish things except gets hurt and then is in an offense that doesn't give him the ball as much. And suddenly he's almost off the radar. Well, comparing him to David Montgomery might be considered damning with faint praise, but you have someone who could bounce back in the second year if things go right. I think the fact that the Bills had fewer high value touches than a lot of other offenses maybe obscures the fact that the offense wouldn't have to change that significantly for them to have a ton. You have this team that passes a lot, you get some of the, more of those passing attempts to the running backs because their running backs emerge a little bit, and suddenly you have that all-important receiving volume. You get down to the goal line, if those guys stop getting stuffed, if the offensive line blocks a little bit better, then the team can say, okay, well, it's not we're, like we're going to stop having Josh Allen run near the goal line. That's a big weapon. That's a big part of our offense. We don't have to do it constantly because we also don't want him getting hurt. Right. So if we have the running backs can punch it in, I mean, they're going to be down there by the goal line constantly. They're going to be 
right there with Kansas City, you know, maybe a Baltimore as the highest scoring team in the NFL. And so when you're looking at what you want at running back, I mean, you want those teams that are going to score a ton of touchdowns because we don't necessarily know in any given year where the touchdowns are going to come. And it seems like an absolute lock that that more will go to the running backs this year. I'll just say because they had five TDs to their secondary blocking tight ends on little play action dump offs, design plays. Isaiah McKenzie had five touchdowns. Some of those were in week 17, but a, a few of those were on jet motion tip passes. They were doing these, you know, pretty smart, I think, designed red zone packages type plays. And I would argue that, yeah, that was all very smart and worked very well. But at the same time that they scored a lot more touchdowns in those ways than you can expect them to score in 2021. And so naturally some of that stuff would shift back to more traditional type plays in the red zone. And, and it feels very beyond the fact that they scored so few of so many touchdowns. They had some in, in some of these really kind of unique plays that defenses are going to be a little bit more on. And and that's where the, you know natural regression kicks in. They're, they're going to score more rushing touchdowns this year at the backs. And what do you think about Devin Singletary? Someone who was explosive in college, explosive as a rookie, has this really disappointing sophomore slump last season. In the past couple of weeks, we started to get a bigger gap between Moss and Singletary as it's become fairly obvious that Moss's ADP didn't make a lot of sense. At the same time, there are still some concerns about Moss being completely healthy, and the buzz out of Buffalo is that Singletary looks a lot better again. Are, are you willing to bet at all, especially at the almost free prices of Singletary, that he could have a third-year bounce back? I mean, I I actually have been toying with this idea that it's hard to take Moss because Singletary is even cheaper, and I don't really necessarily want to take both, and I, I really like taking Singletary. He has he had 50 targets last year moss only had 18 they both ran similar routes a big reason that happened is singletary saw targets on 14 plus percent of his routes and he did as well as a rookie moss saw targets on only about nine percent of his routes now i don't know how sticky that's necessarily going to be it's very small samples but it is interesting to me that singletary was the one that allen you know solid five percentage points was more and, and and he did it as well as a rookie that he that, that allen seemed more comfortable dumping the ball off to for whatever reason and so that target gap is really interesting. And then on an offense that probably even, even as there is going to be some running back touchdown regression, probably isn't going to, to have a ton of goal line rush TDs. You would think that some of the, the running back touchdown regression comes on some big plays too. And Singletary is the guy that probably has more potential to score from 20, 25 yards out than Moss, in my opinion. And we saw that more in Singletary's rookie year, a couple plays where he showed a little bit more explosiveness. And so I think he's kind of an interesting way to play the backfield too. He's they're both way too cheap. And then we've talked about AJ Dillon. He's one of your main targets. We've talked a little bit about Tony Pollard. I'm going to kind of spring this on you. We didn't talk before the show about having a Gretch me if you can segment in this episode, but give us our Gretch me if you can running back in this round 10, 11, 12 range. Who are you getting on every roster? I think it would have to be AJ Dillon. He's the one that I I I loved him as a as a prospect. I was targeting him in Dynasty. Loved the profile because we didn't know for sure that he couldn't catch passes, and everyone was sort of convinced that he couldn't. Uh, his, his entire college offense was built around him. It's not just that he had all of the rushing work; it's that he had all of the offense. They had so little passing yardage, and what we see with backs like that is the teams don't throw to them because they can just hand off to them essentially. There is the potential that he never has much of a, a receiving workload, but the the, the Derek, Herrick, Derek Henry comparisons, I think, were probably a little too unfair in that regard. That like he can certainly have some, 
and, and the Packers have, have thrown to the backs in the past. He's probably going to get more playing time along. Don't necessarily buy that Aaron Jones is going to have this massive workload. The the Packers have always sort of shied away from that, seeing him as sort of more of a weapon that they're willing to use. And I like Aaron Jones. You know, we've talked about he's probably the closest thing to, to the Jamal Charles type back in the NFL right now, but not a huge back and not a guy that I, I think, especially when you consider that they drafted A.J. Dillon in the first round and then they let Jamal Williams walk. And you think about sort of what their progression in the last 18 months has been with their running back decisions. They're seeing a thunder and lightning combination. They're seeing that they can continue to use Aaron Jones, even though they, you know, they brought him back and they let Jamal Williams walk. They like Aaron Jones, but they're, they're, they're going to continue to use him how they've always used him. Like, why wouldn't they? I, that's just, I feel very strongly about that, especially when they invested, excuse me, not a first round pick, but a second round pick on AJ Dillon to bring in this guy who was such a dominator in college. And you've talked so many times before about, dominant you know running back dominator rating being sort of undervalued running back production being sort of undervalued but he also has the athletic measurables didn't play a lot last year great example of a guy who you mentioned the, the sort of the target of a guy who didn't really meet expectations in year one very intriguing prospect but everyone who drafted him was bummed that he didn't play really all year but he did play late and he was good when he played and, he, and they continued to use him into the playoffs as well a little bit and he continued to be pretty efficient He's going to get carries. They're not going to salt away games giving Aaron Jones carries. They're going to salt away games giving their 247-yard size speed freak running back carries. When they win games in the third and fourth quarter, they're going to give A.J. Dillon the ball. The question is, does he get some of the Jamal Williams receiving value? And if he does, he doesn't even need an Aaron Jones injury to be an easy hit at, at ADP. But then also, if Aaron Jones were to, to miss some time, A.J. Dillon's you know, potentially Derrick Henry. I mean, not... Derek Henry, that's that's unfair because Derek Henry is, from an efficiency perspective, from a um, a stylistic perspective, he's a very hard guy to tackle. He's huge. The, the size speed thing is is important to discuss and to recognize. What I mean when I say he, he could be Derek Henry is that he can be so efficient on rushing on on what will probably be workhorse rushing volume in that scenario that it almost doesn't matter to to a certain degree that he wouldn't get as many, much passing work if that didn't happen. But I think he could also get the passing work is is the the whole issue and. You know, a guy that big makes a lot of sense in the goal line areas. There's just so many ways for him to hit with or without Aaron Jones missing time. Uh, I feel really confident picking him in in those ranges. And just to create a little more context for why would it be okay for Dylan, who might have a similar profile to Henry. Now you're suggesting passing volume in there as well. But even if he's just Henry, why would it be okay at his ADP versus why Henry is a must avoid in the first round? You pull up the best ball win rate explorer. You look at the FFPC numbers for 2020, the top 10 win rates at running back. We've got two first rounders in Alvin Kamara and Dalvin Cook. We've got one second rounder in Aaron Jones, the other Green Bay back there. We've got one middle round guy in David Montgomery, and then six late round backs. Six of the top 10 win rates come from the late rounders. And because you just you don't have to get the same amount of scoring to have a similar impact on a team later on in the draft, that's why we're looking for these big talents in those ranges. Absolutely. And I think just to finish up the Dylan point, I think people are comparing him in their mind to Tony Pollard, who I also really like. The, the, the chief difference for me is I think drafters are drafting them similarly because they think they both have similar upside if the guy in front of them gets hurt. But I, I think Dylan's going to have more of a role on his own right than probably Pollard just because the Cowboys are so sort of I – mean, or at least I, I have more security in that. Pollard could 
could have a, a solid role, but the Cowboys are so tied to Zeke Elliott from a contractual standpoint that man through next year that they're going to, they're going to probably continue to, to feed him, which is just so annoying for people who know how good Tony Pollard is. Let's talk about some of the pass catching backs. Cause one of the things, and just broadly when you're building zero running back rosters, one of the things that I like to do is to have at least probably one pass catching back on a roster. Not always, but I don't like to have too many. And I think that can be a mistake you can get into. And I got into a little bit early on was thinking, look at all these, you know, projectable running back points again. Look, they're going to catch a lot of passes. It's very projectable. These guys are going to beat ADP. And it's not always just about beating ADP. You do want to still find ways to, to hit ceiling. In many ways, those guys are, are just clear values and clear, easy picks. But also they can sort of sink what you're trying to do if you take too many of them. And then the second thing about them that I think is really interesting is we see some of their production be very role specific. And if you go back and look over several years at, you know, pass catching back only types, they have more of a ceiling than people realize, you know, Danny Woodhead had a top five season, James White had a top 10 season. Uh, I'm missing a few, but there are guys that basically only as pass catching backs because they had enough receptions and because the TD spiked, they basically had, a volume of, of sort of what we're looking for with high value touches without the low value touches. They didn't get all the low value rushing, but they had enough of the, of the high value stuff that they were able to be top 10 backs on a season long perspective. Naheem Hines was that guy last year. And one of the things that I see is that these backs that have great spike seasons don't necessarily back it up the next year because their situation changes a little bit, but they're the ones that go higher in draft. So I like to, to target the ones that are a little bit cheaper that maybe are coming off a less impressive season out of that role. How do you think about that? Completely agree. Austin Eckler, a very obvious guy who was sitting there to be drafted for almost nothing, goes out and has a 300-point fantasy season, right? And now is being drafted on that as opposed to going after players who might have a similar profile looking forward. Now, the thing with some of these pass-catching backs and some of the other backs when they break out, it's because the person who was siphoning a little bit of the volume gets hurt. And so you look at a Heinz, for example, and you're trying to figure out where he can really go if Taylor doesn't get hurt. But even then, you've got an interesting profile, someone who 7.1 receiving EP last season, right? So already right there, you've got someone you could plug and play if you had to. And then you add a little bit of rushing, you add a touchdown here and there, suddenly you've got someone who is helping you win. 7.5 receiving EP as a rookie. So two of his three seasons, he's above seven in that receiving EP category. My concern there is just, I think that Taylor is such a monster. I expect him to carve into the receiving value that Hines has. I mean, you've got a 226 pound back with 439 speed who knows how to use it. I mean, you've got to get him in the ball in space. I mean, you've got to get him the ball everywhere. Absolutely. And another thing I would add as well is if you go back and look, and, and this is why I, I, I value quarterbacks in, with regards to receiving EP a, a pretty decent amount. If you go back and look at Philip Rivers' career, his receiving backs have always had very strong receiving EP. It's a big, big reason Eckler was the breakout he was. And you go back to the Danny Woodhead example, that also happened with Philip Rivers. That doesn't mean Carson Wentz isn't going to necessarily throw to his backs, but I, I do see sort of a drop off there for Heinz from how good Philip Rivers has been for his past catching backs in terms of receiving EP in the past. And so there's a, there's a couple things that are, that are impacting him negatively. I love the player, but 
he is someone coming off a spike year that is going a little bit higher and 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 there's a little bit more certainty in him from drafters because of last year and and the circumstances are are definitely a little different and you had mentioned getting exposure to these pass catching running backs just to give a little bit of a feel for what i'm looking for from my overall backfield in a zero rb draft and it doesn't have to be this way every time i'm not trying to force this i'm not looking at the draft and saying okay i've got to fill these slots i'm taking the guy that i like best as the draft develops right so i'm not forcing this but the general idea would be to have a couple of guys who have bounce back or breakout and really kind of the combination again this uh, this idea of someone we're disappointed in a couple of those guys someone who could end up being the next star and be a big league winner i want to have some exposure to that then i want to have a couple of pass catching running backs and then i want to have a couple of guys who their seasons would really change if someone got hurt now we're not rooting for people to get hurt we're just getting exposure to situations inexpensively when it makes sense and so you know daryl henderson might be an example of someone who has that ability we know he's a talented guy if the backfield would change then his upside is through the roof and so even though we're not trying to force it i think having exposure to a variety of profiles lets us accomplish multiple objectives we do score some points we have those receivers in there to score some points which is very very important you know we mentioned how the blairs team in mind really just ended up with that we just had Hines and mckissick for that receiving value but in most seasons, it's going to be someone like a James Robinson. It's going to be someone like all of those second, third-year backs who you own them in the season they became superstars. I think that that's such a big element of zero RB that people don't necessarily talk about is you're owning the next generation of star. And as opposed to lamenting the fact that, okay, I couldn't draft these first-rounders, I couldn't draft these second-rounders, I wasn't able to get those guys, you just get the next ones, right? So you see, so you still have access to you still have stars on your roster you're not giving up you're not capitulating at the running back position so that'd be kind of how i would break it down from a, a pass catching back perspective ben who are some of these cheap guys we have giovanni bernard who could be the james white there in tampa bay has some negative peripherals in terms of where maybe he is athletically at this point in his career at the same time i think that he's been an undervalued reality player to where if the Bengals had been better while he was in Cincinnati that he would have a higher profile in terms of how people think about him and then you know James White could be the James White if Mac Jones is the quarterback and brings some of the things that we saw last year at Alabama to the table and then does need a safety valve at times when we know that this Patriots offense will pass to the backs if you have the quarterback in a situation in which that makes sense Yep, absolutely. I think both of them make a lot of sense. I really like Bernard. He's getting a little pricier in some drafts. Again, like you you want to target this profile cheaply when, when you can, because typically there's always a, a cheaper option. And to the point about James White being the James White, J.D. McKissick could be the J.D. McKissick. I mean, we all love Antonio Gibson's upside, and I'm drafting him as a player that has a legitimate ceiling. And, and, and then also, I, I will note that J.D. McKissick has the same issue that I, I mentioned with Hines, where he's losing Alex Smith, who's another quarterback who has loved to throw to the backs. Uh, he caught 80 balls last year, though, and is going very late. If they just continue to use him as a pass catcher for a period of time, at least early in the season, you're getting him at the very end of draft sometimes. And so he's another one that I think is vaguely interesting. Not not really a, a, a huge target, but but somewhat interesting. But yeah, Bernard is one that I really like. Oh, and then Tariq Cohen, another example of a guy didn't have a great year last year, got hurt. Now everyone's convinced 
that David Montgomery is going to play on three downs or maybe not necessarily convinced, but Cohen was expensive because he showed some explosiveness. I mean, and, and his overall efficiency hasn't been great so far in his career. And I think there are some, some reasons to be concerned, but the other guy in that backfield as well is Damian Williams that are both cheap, but if Cohen is healthy and, and we have sort of gotten some negative indications, you do think that they're probably going to throw him the ball. Some like that's how they've used him in the past. And that's why he was in some places as high as like a sixth or seventh round pick last year. And now you can get him very cheaply. So it's sort of like which of this, this group of guys that we feel pretty comfortable will catch passes is going to go too late. There's a few more you can throw in. I mean, the Kansas city guys I think are interesting. No one's drafting Daryl Williams or, or potentially Jarek McKinnon, potentially Darwin Thompson. It's crazy because Darwin Thompson tends to have a big game anytime he actually plays, but they don't like to play him. Right. Right. The guy they do like to play is Daryl Williams. And I think part of the reason he's not getting drafted at all is because Jerick McKinnon's there too. And some people are excited about that, but they brought in, you know, LaShawn McCoy, they brought in Carlos Hyde, they brought in guys that they, they always keep going back to Daryl Williams. And so I, I don't know. I, I, he's the one that I sort of prefer out of those three and they've used him in the passing game a good amount in the past. They've used him on passing downs. And his profile, I, like, again, I, I think Clyde Edwards-Hilaire is another one that, like Antonio Gibson, is a really interesting upside play that could have all the elements we're looking for in the earlier rounds. But if something were to happen to him or just be – if it's more of a split backfield than, than the upside case for that early round player, it could very well be Daryl Williams, the mentor, who's playing too much again. And another guy you can get very, very late and very cheaply and could be catching enough passes to be very relevant. Definitely. I, Williams is tricky for me because I do have concerns about the talent level there. And so whether he could break out, and especially now to have added a little bit more depth, I don't, I don't know if McKinnon and his health at this stage in his career is actual more depth or not. I'd like to believe that it is. But if we're looking at some young guys as well, and maybe combine a couple of these profiles, so someone who is a pass catching back and is also explosive or someone who's a pass catching back and is also very cheap someone where there's a little bit of projectability to the pass catching we don't know that they're a pass catcher at the nfl level but that might be there a couple of guys that always catch my eye because i want exposure to speed i mean speed especially from guys who who aren't gigantic is very inexpensive at the running back position and, and so i always end up with a lot of these very fast guys darrington evans hubbard there with the panthers both of them, if they find a hole, they're going to be gone. And within those offenses, if something should happen, and, and I think that what we're hoping for is a little bit of standalone value as well. I think maybe there's a little bit more with Evans than there probably is with Hubbard. But guys who have that ability to create big plays are very, very inexpensive and are a little bit out of fashion. Yeah, I like both a lot. Um, Evans is a great call. I wonder, you know, in that offense, how much he'll be used as a receiver, but it almost doesn't matter because he's still, a, you know, just a fantastic sort of handcuff play as well. And, and similar to Hubbard uh, another, as you were describing sort of that, that profile, younger players that have receiving ability. Another one that's sort of interesting, very ambiguous backfield is uh, Kenneth Gainwell in, in Philadelphia. We don't think they're probably going to throw to their running backs a ton, but if he earns the number two job, and I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that he could, most of the fantasy community is a little skeptical of Miles Sanders at this point. There's there's reason to think that Gainwell could at least have some type of a passing downs role. Maybe that won't really translate to 
startable weeks necessarily because of, of Jalen Hurts' presence and his rushing and and how that might not translate to a lot of running back targets. But there are scenarios where, you know, maybe Hurts isn't quarterbacking for the full, full season or Sanders goes down or things like that. And you wind up with Gainwell potentially playing a larger role and and having the the receiving be a big part of that. And so he's somebody that's at least interesting as well. He's a, a little bit of a trickier one for me to to, to take in, in a lot of cases, but I think fits that young role that you were talking or that young profile you were talking about where the guy obviously has some receiving success in his profile. Then we're getting close to the cutoff for today, but do we have some deep draft zero RB candidates or in more traditional formats, the guys who are at the very top of your watch list that we have to be ready for if any news breaks either in camp or after week one? Yeah, I think the answer to this for me is is sort of some of these backfields where we don't necessarily know who the RB2 is, but we know that the offense is, is going to be good for running back production. And that's something I, I talk a lot about with my high-value touches is that the team high-value touches tend to translate to the next man up a, a pretty good amount. And it makes for smart in-season stashes. It's not necessarily the high-value touch point is why I was targeting Jeff Wilson, but the team running back value often tends to translate to the next man up. We saw it with Mike Davis behind Christian McCaffrey last year. And so like a couple of the backfields that I think are really interesting are the chargers. There's probably going to be someone playing alongside Eckler to some degree. We don't really know if it's going to be Justin Jackson, Joshua Kelly, Larry Roundtree, perhaps. I also think that would be sort of devastating, but a landing spot that would make some sense for guys like Todd Gurley and Adrian Peterson and guys like that. Um, But Somebody there is worth keeping an eye on at the very least, because that is a backfield that's going to have high value touches and running back production. And if there were a scenario where Austin Eckler were to go down, those guys could be very valuable. And the same thing is true with the Chiefs guys that I agree with a lot of what you said about Daryl Williams. I'm not very confident in the skill level either. It's more just that he's so cheap again, because we don't know who the RB2 is. And so there are some backfields like that. And, and uh, I've mentioned Samaj P. Ryan before uh, on one of our early episodes. I like the Bengals offense. Drafters are really only taking Joe Mixon. I think P. Ryan's probably the best bet to be the backup because he closed the season really well. Two two strong games to end the season last year. And and coaches kind of tend to care about that kind of thing into the next year, I, I think. But point is that these are very, very late, late bets, very, very um reasonable bets. Atlanta's another place where we don't know who the backup is. It could be Cordero Patterson, it could be Javian Hawkins, the the rookie. So th- there's some guys that make a lot of sense where, you know, these backfields have had some running back production. There's sort of this, this element where no one really is drafting the second running back. What about the Miami dolphins with Ahmed there? You have a situation where he had six appearances last season and was a RB two or better four times. Yeah, no, I think that's another really good spot. Uh, I I don't really buy the Malcolm Brown hype. There's been you know a lot of a lot of camp talk. We had a lot of camp talk out of uh, Miami last year about Jordan Howard and Matt Breida, and their actual actions were that not only did they prefer Miles Gaskin early in the season because he was just the best back they had on the roster, that when he went down they went to Ahmed, and the fact that they played Ahmed last year and he was pretty efficient. I think is a pretty good case in his favor and, and he's probably being undervalued a little bit. And then, you know, they have Jared Dokes, a, a seventh round rookie as well. Um, those are the two that I would be taking bets on. This is an offense that could ascend, but yeah, I think Ahmed makes a lot of sense. He's, 
I mean, he's the one that I, in my projections, but again, there's so much uncertainty, but in my projections, I, I'm putting him as their number two running back. I think that's where they're going to go. I think Malcolm Brown's going to have a, a role, but so did Matt Breida and Jordan Howard. Those roles were pretty small. I think uh, the, this coaching staff also showed us a willingness to, to have sort of a workhorse back with with uh, Gaskin throughout most of the year and then Ahmed at, at times when he was starting. So I, I think Ahmed's the guy more than Brown that has that potential to, uh, in a scenario where Gaskin misses time, to be the workhorse. And so, yeah, I think he makes a lot of sense. And I think he could have more standalone value this season than he potentially had at times when Gaskin was healthy last year. We have so much focus on the fact that the Dolphins – didn't really do in free agency what we thought they might do. They didn't really do in the draft uh, because Gaskin is considered to be such a fragile starter. Even the very minimal changes they made in free agency and the draft do get some attention, but their decision to not make those moves could reflect as much on Ahmed as it does on Gaskin, because you do need to have a little bit of a, a backfield committee. You need to have some depth. So they're telling us that they like that backup in many ways, as much as they're telling us they like the starter there. So I, I like those guys. I think that that could pan out. I have two more for you that I, I have to get your opinion on before we go. I've been, I've been wanting to ask you about both these players. I know you like them both and they're not really being drafted. It's Eno Benjamin and Justice Hill. Eno Benjamin, seventh round rookie last year. We loved his profile, has the receiving ability, pretty ambiguous backfield. We don't, I mean, there's chat chatter that Chase Evans might be the lead guy. They obviously brought in James Connor. I mean, he's so cheap in drafts that maybe he's sort of interesting just because Kenyon Drake was productive even in a role where he wasn't very good last year, but he, but he was able to score touchdowns. James Conner, big, you know, big, big time injury history. Chase Edmonds, we don't know a lot about. Eno Benjamin didn't play really at all in his rookie year, and that's obviously a concern, but they still have him on the roster. They didn't really add a ton of depth. We don't necessarily know what they think of him. It might have just been a case where he wasn't active because of special teams or things like that but they there's they're keeping him around which i think is at least a decent enough indication a lot of times these seventh rounders that aren't playing they just get released and they're gone so i i'm sort of interested in him as the potential guy that could ascend there if there was some chaos in the atlanta back or arizona backfield and then justice hill sort of same thing no more mark ingram it's probably going to be a two-back backfield but it's been three backs at times they've liked justice hill at times more, more so a couple years ago. Last year, it was harder to get him touches because they had three guys ahead of him, but it was almost like they were giving Mark Ingram work because they felt they had to, like veteran deference. And then tor- towards the end of the year, they were sort of just not using him and, and really going with Dobbins and, and Edwards. But going into this year, I could see scenarios where they use Hill more. I also think if Dobbins were to miss time, we're not going to see Edwards do all do all the everything. He's he's an in, inside-the-tackle type of runner, very straight-line runner. And at that in that scenario, that Hill would probably – play on the edges and in the passing game in the in the more Dobbins role so there's some some handcuff potential these are both again guys that don't get drafted but I'm wondering do you see upside are you still excited about two players I know you liked in the past yeah it's tricky as you mentioned not getting drafted I don't think these guys are necessarily even rosterable in 30 roster spot dynasty leagues and so you know they're they're very much on the periphery he'll maybe a last roster spot guy in dynasty but there are intriguing elements right because you look at the cardinals and they're a similar team to the dolphins and they didn't really do much now james connor could be more of an upgrade i mean he could be a big upgrade on Kenyon drake as it all plays out in which case i think they would say look we did a good job and just didn't pay very much for it i mean you don't have to pay the running back a lot in order for him to be a big 
part of your team. And as you mentioned, still there. The thing that we go back to for you know Benjamin constantly is that his profile is almost identical to Clyde Edwards-Alaire. And so if you like Edwards-Alaire as a player, not necessarily as a fantasy asset because very, very different situations, but you should have Benjamin at least on your radar, right? Because he could potentially come in and do some of those Chase Edmonds types of things if Edmonds were to go down. The concern that I have there is that you filter through the news coming out of Arizona and it's difficult to find them talking him up. And so if he were to be a camp cut, I don't think that would be very surprising. Maybe that dampens my enthusiasm a little bit. Hill is a different story because the Ravens make it very clear that they love him, right? They're like, you know, we have J.K. Dobbins. We think Dobbins may be one of the best three or four backs in the NFL. He's going to be a star for us. We think Gus Edwards is very undervalued. I never understood the Mark Ingram starting signing there in the first place because Edwards was good, right? They didn't need Ingram to fill that role. The Ravens, as things have progressed, have seemed to go more in that direction themselves. But Hill brings an explosiveness that he doesn't have. If Dobbins were to go down, I think that Hill would actually get a lot of work. But because of the way these offenses go and because this Ravens team likes to be explosive, has a lot of explosiveness, even as a run-oriented team. When you think of a run-oriented team as being, you know, try and protect the ball, let the defense win, the Ravens score a ton of points. They want to blow you out and then let their defense sort of maul you, right? They're not trying to do kind of Pete Carroll's Seahawks dream of like winning 17 to 16 every game. Within that environment, Hill has a lot going for him. He was a guy who completely shut the door immediately at Oklahoma State on Chris Carson. Now, we say, okay, well, that's a long time in the past. Different situations, different profiles that work in college. When we're looking at the talent that these players have, I do think that that's at least something to keep in the back of your mind because Chris Carson is a very good player, right? So when we're talking about the talent and how the talent will eventually manifest if the person gets an opportunity, he'll someone that I look at, and as you mentioned, fits the profile perfectly, of an explosive back. He's got that speed. He can create the big plays. He would be a pass catching back. The Ravens have at least paid lip service to the idea they're going to get their backs a little bit more involved in the passing game. So not someone you can draft to start the season, but definitely keep your eye on him. I love it. Yeah. You got me really excited about Hill there. And you're probably right about Benjamin that it wouldn't be that surprising if he got cut, but he's one that I'm going to have on, on watch list during the season if he does make the roster. And especially if he's finally active on some game days but the hill thing to me as i think more and more about edwards is this middle round option edwards is just such a floor play and i don't think there are scenarios where he has like a huge ceiling to the to everything we just said if you think that he has ceiling or you're making that pick because of the potential that uh dobbins might miss time i would suggest that hill's the better pick for that because he's obviously a lot cheaper and i think would have potentially the better role, the more valuable role in that scenario. Um, and could be, for all we know, we haven't seen enough of him yet, could be very, very good and similar to what we're hoping for out of Dobbins, frankly, at the top in profile and, and, and how, how you know things play out. So very, very interesting guys to keep your eye on. But yeah, I think that, that will probably do it for our player target episode. Do we hit on everyone? Is there anyone else you want to talk about? Well, we could, we could go even more better save a little bit to mix in on show three. If you didn't feel like we said anything controversial enough yet, the first two episodes of our zero RB theme, 
then stay tuned for part three. That'll do it for us today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Sean Siegel. With me is Ben Gretsch. As always, you can follow him at Yards Per Gretsch. Make sure you keep track of his Twitter feed as he's going to keep you up to date on Stealing Signals, the best newsletter in the fantasy industry. I'm obviously biased as Ben is one of my best friends and co-host, but you read an episode or an article from Stealing Signals, you'll be an immediate convert there. I, I feel strongly enough, I guarantee that. If you read one of his posts, you'll be completely sold. We'll have more episodes this week. Subscribe to our feed to get them when they release. Please drop us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Uh, the contest is filling up quickly, so make sure you get those in. If you want to get a discount to Rotoviz, check out the tools we've been talking about. Check out how to find out the rush EP, the receive EP for these players. My picks to help you win your draft with these RB selections in the late rounds. Uh, just put in RB Radio 2021 at checkout to get the discount. Until we chat with you again, keep drafting. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.